0: multiplied to each of you this morning in the knowledge of our God and Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Amen? I got good news for you. Um, Pastor Chad just gave you probably the best news we could give you. Uh, Meredith and I got word from a person in person this week that the first $25,000 gift is given to our $220,000 goal. Um, So that's a that's a gold that's a gold gift, right? Above and beyond in precious stones. and I know that the Lord will speak and the Lord will um, give provision to what he's doing in this season. and uh, just want to make clear to for those of you I think most of you know, but um, this is not a two hundred and twenty thousand dollar goal for the next twelve months before we begin. So oftentimes maybe that has been um, the response or the perception so, uh, you're about to see dirt moving really, really quickly, right? And so the beginning of this building is not waiting on that $220,000 goal, but that is no doubt the goal that we have and feel that God has given us uh, in order to be able to move into that building. Um, from the time they start building to the time we move in, hopefully 12 months or less, amen? So we're excited about that, and again, um, thank you so much for your consideration Uh Today, if you've got a Bible, turn with me. I want to invite you to turn with me to the book of John, John chapter 4. John chapter 4 is our text for today. And the message card is on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, website, or version. So if you have any access to any of those, that message card will be before you today as well. I want to pray, and then we'll jump into the reading of God's Word. Father, in the name of Jesus We ask afresh and we ask anew that you would open our eyes again, that we might behold wonderful things about Jesus. Lord, we pray that as your word says, we would crave the pure spiritual milk of the word as babes, and we would grow thereby. Father, I pray today you would grant me physical strength, and you would grant me spiritual energy, Lord, to speak your word with faithfulness, with clarity, with authority, with passion, wisdom, humility, and freedom. And Lord, we ask that Jesus and Jesus alone would be exalted as the Word of God is preached this morning. In Jesus' name. And everybody said? My assignment today is Jesus' conversation with the woman at the well, as recorded in John chapter 4. John chapter 4. I want to teach this morning. I might slip into preaching every now and again, but I really want to teach. I really want to teach. John chapter 4, beginning with me in verse 1. I will forewarn you, we're going to read a very long stretch of text. I invite you to open your Bible. Stick with me. I'm going to refer back to this passage again and again and again. John chapter 4, beginning in verse 1. Now, when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you suppose you're going to get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? Notice the question. Are you greater? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and all his livestock. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water. "'Welling up to eternal life. "'The woman said to him, "'Sir, give me this water, "'so that I will not be thirsty "'or have to come here to draw water. And "'Jesus said to her, "'Go call your husband "'and tell him to come here. "'The woman answered him, "'I have no husband. "'Jesus said to her, "'You're right in saying I have no husband, "'for you've had five husbands, "'and the one you now have is not your husband. "'What you said is true. "'The woman said to him, "'Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet.' (laughs) <laughs> Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. Notice that. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. God is spirit, and those that worship Him must worship in spirit and in truth. And the woman said to Him, I know the Messiah is coming. He is called the Christ, and when He comes, He'll tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am He. Just then the disciples came back, and they marveled that He was talking with a woman, but no one dared say, what do you seek or why are you talking with her? So the woman left her water jar. Very significant detail. Left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people, Come see a man. Come see a man who told me all that I ever did. This, can this be the Christ? And they went out of town and were coming to him. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples said to one another, Has anyone brought him something to eat? He said to them, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Do not say that there are four months, then comes the harvest. Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life so that the sower and reaper may rejoice together. For here the saying holds true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you disciples to reap that for which you did not labor. for we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. Amen and amen. This convo with Jesus, this conversation between a Samaritan one, a woman and the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ stands out for three reasons. First of all, it stands out because it's the longest recorded conversation of Jesus in all of the Bible, including with his disciples. There's no other conversation we find inside the biblical text that's longer than the one you and I just read. Jesus, by the mere and sheer reality of the length of this recorded conversation, it highlights the significance of this specific story in the life and the ministry of Jesus Christ. The second reason this story is so significant or stands out for such significance is because of the placement of this story. It is recorded immediately after Jesus' late-night, Nick-at-night conversation with Nicodemus, the ruling high priest, a, a, a man who is very religious. And in the previous chapter, John 3 had a Nick-at-night conversation where he would tell Nicodemus that he must be born again. And in a real sense, we... We feel the tension as we read through John 3 and John 4, the tension between the two persons with whom Jesus speaks. John chapter 3, the discussion is with a man. The man is named. The man is named Nicodemus. He is a religious man. He is a moral man. He is a well-known man. He is an influential man. Note the contrast in John chapter 4. Jesus has a conversation with a woman. The woman is unnamed. The highlight of her story is her immoral past. The highlight of her story is that she has been married five times and the man she's with now is not her husband. I want you to feel the tension between these stories because the tension between these two stories remind us that as we begin this study of the woman at the well... Jesus came to reach the up and out, and Jesus came to reach the down and out. Jesus came to reach both. There is no one, John chapter 3 teaches us, there is no one beyond the need of grace. John chapter 4 teaches us there is no one beyond the reach of God's grace. In this story, Jesus now presents to us the good news of himself, which, by the way, is the third major significance of this conversation. It's not just its length, it's not just its position in the text, it's not just the the length and the position, but it's the message of this story. And, church, the message of this story is that Jesus is the Son of God who has come to save sinners. That's the message. Signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, the book of John. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the God, and that believing you may have life in his name. John chapter 4, we didn't read it, but verses 50 50 through 56 begins to tell us one of such signs. John's gospel is called the the Signs Gospel because there's seven signs. That we get that proves that Jesus is the Christ. John's gospel was written for that very reason, verse 31, to know and believe that he is the Christ. Yet, this story you and I read of Jesus and the conversation with the Samaritan woman, even though it's not a sign in that sense, it fulfills the same purpose of John's gospel. Here we meet a woman who believes that Jesus is the Christ and she receives eternal life. Back to our text. Jesus begins the chapter by setting the scene. Look at your Bible, verse 1. Now when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself didn't baptize but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee, and he had to pass through Samaria. That's verse 4. These opening verses of John chapter 4 draw us back to the latter portion of John chapter 3. Specifically, John chapter 3, verse 25 and jews over purification rituals and john's disciples come to john and say all of your disciples not us of course but the rest of them are leaving and going after that man over there remember the one that you said behold the lamb of god are you cool with this john are you cool with all of your men leaving you and going to this one called Jesus. And John, in John chapter 3, would declare that I am not the bridegroom. I'm only the friend to the bridegroom. And specifically, he says in John 3 and verse 30, that of Jesus, he must increase and I must decrease. Jesus, no doubt, is increasing. His ministry and fame is growing. The tension of the text is that The Pharisees note this. Now, Jesus at this point in his ministry seems to want to avoid all political controversy with the Pharisees. So Jesus departs and heads towards Galilee. Look back at your Bible in verse 4. This statement, oh, it has so much significance. And he had to pass through Samaria. He had to pass through Samaria. It was custom, church, that... Jews would not take this direct route through Samaria to Galilee because of the ongoing tensions between the Jews and Samaritans. Let me show you a quick map. I'll show you a quick map. For those who have been to Israel, you'll you'll recognize this. Notice Jesus leaving Ephraim. He takes the direct route through Samaria to Saqqara, Jacob's well, up to Nazareth to get to Ty. The Bible tells us that the far right line was the normal traditional route Jews would take. Why? Because they could not go through the land of Samaria. Why? In 750 BC, when Assyria attacked the northern kingdom called Israel, southern kingdom was called Judah, Assyrians took the Israelites into Assyrian captivity. Then they began to marry them. Then they created half-breeds. Assyrian Jewish people are called Samaritans. They're half-breeds. They were looked down upon. There was tension. Jews didn't go through Samaria because they wouldn't have interaction with these Samaritan people. And the Bible says that Jesus had to pass through Samaria. Had to pass through Samaria. Okay? This is a remarkable reality, right? That Jesus makes the decision to say we're going to take the direct route. The land now being repopulated by half-breeds. This has now continued even to Jesus' day. They would normally take the alternate route through the Jordan River to not pass through Samaria. Jesus instead takes the direct route for not geographical reasons, but Jesus is on a mission. There is a woman he is to meet in Samaria. So he, look at verse 5. He came to a town of Samaria called Sakaar, near the field that Jacob had given to Joseph. And Jacob's well was there, so Jesus, weird as he was, was sitting by the well. And it was about the sixth hour. Sixth hour is noon, 12 o'clock. Now, before we get to the conversation itself, let's consider the reference here to the humanity of Jesus. Yes, John's gospel was written so that we would believe that Jesus is the Christ, but here John gives us a glimpse into the humanity of Jesus. As a result of his journey, he was tired, he was weary, he was thirsty. This, by the way, church, is a reminder of what we are told in Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 15. Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 15 tells us this text. It says that Jesus, we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize. As we are, yet he is without sin. Jesus, God in the flesh, sits at this well, tired from his journey, thirsty from the heat of the day. Now verses seven through 26 are going to record for us the story of Jesus' conversation with this woman at the well. This conversation falls into two major sections. Would you consider? First, Jesus gives living water. This is verses seven through verses 15. The second section of that, back of slide, Jesus calls for true worship, verses 16 through verses 26. So the conversation begins in verse 16 with a, a discussion about, or verse 7, with a discussion about water. It was noon, it was the heat of the day, and he rests there. Verse 7 says, a woman from Samaria came to draw water, and Jesus said to her, give me a drink. Now, it was typically a woman's task to draw water. But they usually came at an earlier hour and they came together. This tells us that this woman is an outcast of sorts. She's unable to be with the other women. She's unable to come at the time that most women come to get water. She's coming in the heat of the day. She comes not only at noon, but she comes alone. She's not expecting to meet anyone at this well. But there is Jesus waiting for her. What we are saying here, friends, is that Jesus, the Son of God, who has come to save sinners. And John shows us that Jesus is willing to cross any barrier necessary to reach the lost. There's not a barrier our Jesus won't cross to reach whoever he wants to reach. Jesus speaks to the woman first. Verse 7, he says, give me a drink. He asked for a drink of water. The disciples had gone into the city to get food for the day. You don't have to guess at the magnitude of this seemingly simple request. It's found in the response of the woman. Verse 9, The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. The request for water church is scandalous on several different terms. Several terms. Number one, this is a Jew Addressing a Gentile. This is a man addressing a woman. This is a Jewish man asking a Samaritan woman for a drink. I repeat, Jesus is willing to cross any barrier necessary to reach the lost. Are we? Are we? Are we? John tells us that Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. But know that Jesus shifts from asking for water from the woman to offering water to the woman in the rest of the paragraph. Look at verse 10. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. Here we see what happens often in John's gospel, where seemingly simple things take on dual, greater, higher significance and meaning. This starts out as a simple conversation about water, but Jesus has now shifted the conversation to something much deeper called living water. This is more than the water that Jacob's well can offer. This is a water that goes beyond what Jacob's well can give. This water that Jesus offers is Salvation water. It is eternal life. Notice how he describes it in verse 10. This living water is a gift from God. Church, salvation is not a reward that you earn by works. It is a gift you receive by God's grace. It is a gift. A gift. Romans 6:23 says and declares that the wages of sin is death but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Salvation is not about what we do for God. It is about the gift of amazing grace that God gives to us. He says, "Living water can be your gift, Samaritan woman." But notice the stipulations. He gives two stipulations. Everybody say two. In verse 10, We see two stipulations. They are the words new, K-N-E-W, and ask, A-S-K. To receive this living water, you must know what the gift of God is. You must have knowledge of who you're speaking to. You must know Jesus Christ. John 17 and 3, and this is eternal life that you may know God and Jesus Christ whom he has sent. You must know Jesus Christ and you must ask. Everybody say no and ask. Hallelujah. Salvation is free for the asking. Aren't you grateful? Romans 10 and verse 13 says, For whoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. This asking is significant because so many, especially in America, do not recognize the true nature of their thirst. And they go looking for satisfaction in all of the wrong places. They go looking for a drink in all of the wrong relationships. Think back with me to Jeremiah chapter 2, verse 12 and verse 13. Jeremiah chapter 2, next slide, verse 12 and verse 13. Be appalled, O heavens, at this. Be shocked, be utterly desolate, declares the Lord. For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and they have hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold absolutely no water. Two evils humans create. They forget the fountain of living water, and instead they go hew out their own cisterns. They go hew out their own buckets. They go hew out their own desire to drink what they desire to drink but the great invitation of the lord is in isaiah 55 and verse 1 next slide slide. notice what the the invitation is come everyone who thirsts come to the waters and he who has no money come buy and eat come buy wine and milk without money and without price you hear the invitation of the lord Jesus says that living water is free for the asking if you'll know Him. Well, the woman at this point doesn't know and understand the magnitude of what Jesus is still saying, right? She's still thinking of the water, physical water from this well. So she says in verse 11, look at verse 11 and 12. The woman said to Him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with and the well is deep. Where do you get that kind of living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Now in verses 13-15, through Jesus declares to this woman the source of this living water and the nature of this living water. Look at verse 13. The source. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. Jesus is talking about heavenly spiritual things. Her mind is on earthly natural things. She's still thinking about Jacob's well. He said, whoever drinks of this water will be thirsty again. Let me tell you, church, I want to tell you clearly and boldly, this is the reality of all that the world has to offer. It does not last. It will never last. It will never be sustainable. It will never quench the soul. What does it profit a man to gain the whole world and yet lose his soul? Or another way to put that is, what could a man give in exchange for his soul? Whoever drinks of what the world offers will be thirsty again. That's what Jesus says. Verse 14, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. This water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. This, my friends, is the good news of the total sufficiency of Jesus and his personhood. Jesus is totally sufficient. Only Jesus satisfies. Only Jesus can satisfy the deep needs of the human soul. Only Jesus can satisfy the deep needs of what it means to be a human. And whoever comes to Him will never be thirsty again. Jesus alone offers living water that is internal and eternal. He offers us the gift of God. He offers us Himself He offers us His wonderful Holy Spirit. Jesus would say this in John chapter 7, verse 37, 38, and 39. On the last day of the feast, that great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. For whoever believes in me, as the Scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this He said about the Spirit, for whom those who believed in Him were to receive. Watch this. For as yet the Spirit had not been given, Because Jesus had not yet been glorified. Jesus declares the source of this water himself. And then he declares the nature of this water. It is satisfying water that is eternal life. He goes on in verse 15. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water again. Give me some of this water. Here she asks, but she's still not fully sure of what she's asking for. So Jesus is going to make it plain in the next section. After offering living water, we get to the second section of this text. Jesus now calls for true worship. He offers living water, now He calls for true worship. Look at verse 16, And Jesus said to her, Go call your husband, and come here. He offers living water, but now He calls this woman to bid her husband. Something much deeper is going on here, church. We can read this text at surface value and say, oh, Jesus just wants her husband to come so they can drink water together. But you and I know that's not why Jesus asked this woman to call her husband. And she knows that's not why Jesus asked her to call her husband. What is Jesus doing? He's reminding us that the good news of salvation, if it is to be enjoyed, must be preceded by us embracing the bad news of our sin. I want to get really clear with you right here. Most people don't wake up to the good news of salvation till you, I, Jesus, someone clearly gets concrete with the type of sin that's in their life. He's, he, Jesus is not, not mixing words here. He says to her, hey, you've been, bo- you've been beating around the bush. You've been deflecting. You've been talking in theory. Go get your husband. Whoa, whoa, whoa. whoa. What, what is Jesus doing? For us to recognize what a great Savior Jesus is, we must first recognize what great sinners we are. See, when we recognize what great sinners we are, then our appreciation for the great Savior increases. And Jesus confronts her right where she lives. Go call your husband and tell him to come here. There's a deeper reality going on here. Look at verse 17 and verse 18. The woman answered him, I have no husband. And Jesus said to her, you're right in saying I have no husband, for you've had five husbands and the one you have now is not your husband. What you said is true. Here Jesus confronts, he, he lays his finger on the heart of the problem in this woman's life. She has been trying to find satisfaction in broken cisterns. She's hewed out for herself, Jeremiah, to broken cisterns that don't hold water. She's been, she's been searching for satisfaction in cisterns and pots that don't hold water. She's had five husbands. She's gone through five marriages, either by divorce or by death. We don't know. But now she's with someone who's not her husband. And Jesus confronts her with the reality of her brokenness and her broken life and her sinful past and her sinful reality. And she responds in verse 19. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. (laughs) Duh. Now you need to understand something right here. This is more than a deflection, by the way. This is a man who can tell her, as she says in a moment, everything that she ever did. The weary Jesus is the omniscient God who knows everything about this woman's life. He knows everything. And when she says you're a prophet, don't think normal prophet. This has been mistaught many, many times. When she says, you're a prophet, or I perceive, she's not saying, I think that you're like Isaiah and Jeremiah. You know how we know this? The Samaritans only held to five books of the Bible. You know what they were? The Pentateuch, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. You know what she said when she said, I perceive you are the prophet? She perceived Deuteronomy chapter 18 and verse 18. In Deuteronomy chapter 18 and verse 18, this is what the text would say. I will raise up for them a prophet like you, Moses, from among their brothers. I will put, what, my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. She's waiting for a new prophet, a greater Moses. She's waiting for one who is to come, yet she perceives in this Jesus that is the prophet. She perceives in that moment that this is the one that that Deuteronomy 18 speaks of. She shifts now the conversation to the place of worship. She says in verse 20, notice this. She says, our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Notice that. She's smooth. Can we just give her credit for that? She's smooth in shifting this conversation from husbands to worship sites. Right? She she turns it. She wants to know where is the best place for people to worship. Well, Jesus continues to meet this woman right where she is. He is like the hound of heaven that will not let her escape. He goes on in verse 21, And Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. Jesus is saying the hour is coming where the place of worship will be obsolete. The place that you worship won't matter anymore. Verse 22 You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. He says to this woman concerning worship that ultimately true worship is not about where you are. Then he says to this woman, worship is not about what you think. It's not about where you are, and it's not about what you think. That is a word for our day. Worship is not about where you are, and it's not about what you think, what you live, what truth you want to believe. Verse 23, but the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship in the Father in spirit and truth for the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. Wow. Here, what Jesus declares, Jesus demonstrates in this very conversation with this woman. Did you catch it? She was not seeking God, but God was seeking her. What did He say worship starts with? The Father seeking worshipers. You didn't come here this morning seeking to worship God. God brought you here this morning seeking after you. Are you with me? True worship doesn't begin with you seeking God. True worship begins with you going to get water at a well because you're an outcast and now everybody else has thrown you to the wayside and Jesus is there waiting on you because he had to pass through Samaria. Jesus says the Father is seeking worshipers. Worship doesn't start with you seeking God. Worship starts with the Father seeking you. Woo, that is good news this morning. You didn't seek God, He sought after you. Romans, Paul would say it like this: there is no one who seeks after God. There is not one who does good. No, not one. In other words, this is the declaration of Scripture that God is still seeking true worshipers. He wants and goes after worshipers. Now, notice the intention, the intention of what Jesus says here in verse 24. Look what he said. He said, God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and in truth. This is one of the great declarations in the Scripture about the nature of our God. 1 John chapter 1, verse 5 declares that God is light. 1 John chapter 4, verse 8 and 16 declares that God is love. Hebrews chapter 12, and verse 29 declares that God is a consuming fire. Here, Jesus declares that God is spirit. In other words, He cannot be confined to your places. He cannot be confined to your customs. He cannot be confined to your rituals. He cannot be confined to your own mind. God is spirit. And true worship, Jesus says, is beyond ritual and beyond ceremony and beyond custom. It is in spirit. God is spirit and He demands those that would truly worship Him, worship Him in spirit and in truth. Look at me, church. Look at me. Real worship is rooted in a deep, personal experience with God that goes beyond just going through the motions of ritual. That's in spirit. And it's also in truth. Meaning, true worship is on the basis of His divine revelation of Himself and His Word that is the truth and in His Son who is the way, the truth, and the life. And Jesus is saying to this woman that worship must be on God's terms, not ours. We don't set the terms of worship. God has set the terms of worship. Why, you say, Romans eleven thirty six tells us, because all things are from Him, and all things are through Him, and all things are to Him, and Him alone belongs all the glory. And notice how this woman's eyes are being opened as she talks to Jesus. Verse 25, The woman said to Him, I know that the Messiah is coming, who's called the Christ, and when He comes, He'll tell us all, Things. Again, she smoothly shifts the combo. She punts and says, "Hey, hey, the the Messiah's coming. He's gonna make sense of all of this." And Jesus declares to her in verse twenty six, "I who speak to you, am He. <laughs> he is. <laughs> he is the long-awaited Messiah." He is the Christ of God. I am He. Oh, when Messiah is going to come, He's going to make sense all this, you Jew. I am He. The one you are looking for, you are looking at, Samaritan woman. The one you are talking about, you are talking to Samaritan woman. I am he. Jesus says, I am the great I am. In John chapter 6 verse 35, Jesus would say, I am the bread of life. In John chapter 8 verse 12, he would say, I am the light of the world. In John 10 and verse 9, he would say, I am the door. In John 10 and verse 11, he would say, I am the good shepherd. In John 11 and 25, he would say, I am the resurrection, the life. In John 14 and 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except by me. In John chapter 15 and 1, he would say, I am the true vine. Jesus is the son of God who has come to save sinners remember his conversation in John chapter 8 he's debating with the unbelieving Jews and they take offense at him they can't understand how a man this young can talk like this he's only in his 30's how can he claim to, to know Moses he ain't been around long enough and look what he, they say to him in John chapter 8 verse 57 and 58 the Jews said to him you're not yet even 50 years old How are you claiming to see Abraham? And Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. (laughs) He is the God of the Exodus. Jesus was the one who asked Moses to take off his sandals because he would ultimately be the one who would wash the disciples' feet. This is the great I am. Before Abraham was, I am that I am. I am he who's come to save sinners. And this woman, she, she's awakened. Her conscience gets stirred. Jesus is the great I am church. He is the blending of divinity and humanity. Jesus is the meeting place of time and eternity. Jesus is the intersection of heaven and... And earth, Jesus is the great I am. And we would do really well in our 21st century world to make much of Jesus again. We're not called to promote our brand of Christianity. We're not called to promote our brand of Christian living. We're called to declare and herald, Jesus is the great I am. And Jesus alone can save. And Jesus alone can meet the needs of the human soul. Jesus and Jesus alone. And when we, like this woman, were in our sin and we could not get to God, God reached down to us. He met us where we were. He broke whatever barrier was necessary to claim us by His grace. And I love worshiping together this morning, but as we worship together, church, may we be reminded of the greatness of God's grace towards us. May we be a people who refuse to forget what it feels like to be lost. Without hope. Jesus has met us right where we are. He has sought us out. He has provided living water that satisfies the needs of the soul. And then the rest of the story, verses 27 through 42, is the aftermath of the story. Jesus declares himself to be the Messiah to this woman. Look at verse 27. Just then his disciples came back and they marveled that he was talking with a woman. But watch this. No one said, dared say, What do you seek or why are you talking? With her, watch this church, look up here, stick with me. While the clueless disciples show up, the woman departs. And so eager is she, so overjoyed is she, so overwhelmed is she that she leaves her water jar there. No more need for a broken cistern in her life. No more need for a hewed out, personal cistern in her life. There's no more need for a broken cistern in her life. And he goes on, look at verse 29, so unbelievably powerful. Verse 29 tells us in the text, she said to her village, come see a man, come see a man, come see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? Come see a man. Feel the tension between the clueless disciples and the witnessing woman. We don't get a explicit faith confession from her, but like any good disciple of Jesus does, what does she do? She goes back into town to witness about Jesus. To the same people who knew her story. To the same people who knew her past. To the same people who knew she was on her sixth husband. She went to be a witness. How could she go be a witness after They knew what she had done. Y'all, this is the heart of the good news of the gospel. It was never about what she had done. It was about what Jesus had done. She wasn't going back to the city to say, look at me. I'm changed and I'm in my right mind. She said, come see a man. Come see a man. Don't look at me. Look at Jesus. Don't come see a woman. Don't come see a transformed life. Come see a man who told me anything I've ever done. Come see a man. Come see a man. Come see a man. Oh, how desperately the world needs us to make much of the man. This week on Facebook and Twitter, and there has been a lot of stirring in the evangelical world because Rick Warren. This great Saddleback Church ordained three women pastors on stage last Sunday. And the SBC is losing their minds. I've been, because I can't stay out of it, following the conversations this week, and I've watched as strong evangelical leader, SBC leader after SBC leader, sends notifications that women should not be pastors, that women cannot be biblical pastors, Women should stick to the home. Women should stay in the home. Women should recognize the responsibility she has at home. And it has been a firestorm of people and fights just in the last week. So, So much so that even great SBC leaders for the last 20 or 30 years have left just in the last few months, right? And when I read this story this week, you know what question hit me like a ton of bricks? Isn't it ironic that the disciples who are supposed to be evangelists are preoccupied with non-issues like food and lunch while the Samaritan woman that they're worried about is actually going home to do some evangelizing? And I I thought, wouldn't it be ironic today if the people we are most worried about are actually fulfilling the mission better than we are? And this text tells us that these men who are worried about this conversation with this woman and she's going and doing what they haven't done for day after day after day and sharing the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So much so that John 4 tells us that she becomes the greatest evangelist in all of the gospels. She tells her whole village, come see a man. Come see a man. It's not our job to promote our brand of Christianity. It's our job to declare And magnified the Christ. Come see a man. Y'all, I can see through my sanctified imagination. She went back to the baker in the town and she said, Come see a man who is the true bread of life. And they come out to see the man. She went to the whole town, literally becomes the most effective witness. She had awareness of her real need. Look at the exchange, y'all. Look at the transaction. She came with a bucket. He sent her back with a spring of living water. She came as a reject. He sent her back being accepted by God himself. She came wounded. He sent her back whole. She came laden with questions. He sent her back as a source for answers for her whole village. She came living a life of quiet desperation. She ran back overflowing with hope. And the disciples missed it all because it was lunchtime for them. But this, my, my, my friends, is what I want you to see. John does not end the conversation with the woman at the well with the conversation with the woman at the well. The conversation proceeds into an explanation to his disciples of what he's up to in the world. And what we see here, church, is the urgency of the heart of Jesus to reach the lost and how he bids those of us who are his followers to join him on his mission, mission to reach the lost goes on in verse 31. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. And he said to them, I have food to eat that you don't know about. So the disciples said to one another, has anyone brought him something to eat? He said, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Do you not say? There are yet four months, then comes the harvest. Look, I tell you, Jesus said. He shifts the conversation to to the lunch eaters. Lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest now. Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life so that the sower and reaper may rejoice together. For here the saying holds true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap for that which you did not labor. For others have labored and you have entered into their labor. Now note verse 39 and I'm going to land this plain. Many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's Testimony. May this story, church, remind us of the mission to which we have been called. May we be reminded afresh and anew this May in understanding that those of us who are recipients of God's amazing grace must declare this good news to other people. It's the reason for which we've been saved. It's the reason for which God sought after us. Goes on in verse 40. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days. And many more believed because of his word. And they said to the woman, It's no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard ourselves, and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. Maybe you're here today, maybe you're streaming live, or maybe you're listening to this podcast and you don't know him for yourself. You've never encountered him for yourself. May this one scripture serve as a reminder. You cannot get to heaven on someone else's testimony of Jesus. You cannot make it into the kingdom of God based upon your mama's testimony of Jesus or your daddy's testimony of Jesus or your grandma or grandpa's testimony of Jesus. It's not enough to believe because of her word. you got to believe because of his word you got to believe because you've seen him for yourself. You've encountered truth for yourself. You must believe for yourself. John chapter 3, he would tell Nicodemus, you must be born again for yourself. You must trust the good news yourself. Jesus is the Savior of the world, rich or poor, black or white. He's the Savior of the world. Now watch this, church. When Adam and Eve sinned in the garden, what did God do? He covered them with coats. For their sin, didn't he? Killed animals. Later at the Passover, a death as the death angel hit the homes of all the Egyptians, the Israelites were told that those who have blood on the doorpost would be covered. It was a lamb for the family. Later on the Day of Atonement, the high priest would make an offering for the entire nation of Israel covering them in blood. You missed it, didn't you? You missed it, didn't you? I went too fast. God starts with one lamb per person, Garden of Eden. He moves in the Passover to one lamb per household over the doorpost. He moves in the Day of Atonement to one lamb for the whole nation. But I got good gospel news for you today. When Jesus comes to the earth, John the Baptist would say of him, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. One lamb per person, one lamb per household, one lamb per nation, and one lamb for the whole world. His name is Jesus. He's still a Savior. And he's still seeking such to worship him. Jesus, the Son of God. The Son of God. I'm going to ask someone to join me on stage, share you a quick story that moved me this week. When I heard this story, it moved me to hear... Come on, I'm going to put your hands together for Deb as she comes, All right, Deb, who is new to our church, who's in a foundation phase with us, was with us yesterday for Queen for a Day. We love this lady. She's a blessing to me personally. She shared a story of a powerful reality of the intentionality to be like Jesus in John 4. To be sensitive to the needs of the people around us. To do whatever Jesus has asked us to do in just undeterred, simple obedience and how it can forever alter our lives. So, why don't you tell them a quick story you told me this past week. Hi,
1: everybody. Her name is Miss Helen. She came into my restaurant about 89 years old, very fragile, escorted by a gentleman, and wanted to know who was cooking this fish and who was handing out the daily bread. And at the front counter of the restaurant, when you walked in, the first thing you saw was a big fish platter and um, a lot of copies of the daily bread for everyone just to take. So, you know, she came in and got a chance to meet me and. But she was so frail. I said, "Well, let me fix you some food to take back with you." And so I fixed her. I said, "She's really thin." So I, you know, fixed her a big plate of food, and she took it back home with her. Well, she kept calling the restaurant because on the back of the, you know, on the back of the Daily Bread is the name of the restaurant, Fish Dish, and also the phone number. So she kept every week she would call. She called me, Deborah Ann. <laughs> And so every week she called. I said, Miss Helen, I just you know I'm glad you're calling and checking on me. I'm how are you doing, you know? And she said she's doing okay. And I said I can't get to you right now because I'm so busy at the restaurant. But when we closed, the first thing that came to my mind was Miss Helen. So I went to her home, and you know just started talking. And I said, Well, what's going on here? So we walked around the house and went into the kitchen. She didn't have a stove, but she had two burners. And I said, okay. I said, well, what are you eating? I said, you know, what are you eating every day? She lived by herself, a beautiful 10-acre ranch. And, um, you know, she was alone. And I said, well, where's, where's your family? Her closest daughter was in Decatur. This was in McDonough, by the way, I'm sorry. McDonough, Georgia. So I said, well, what are you eating every day? And she says, well, I'm eating a little bit of here, a little bit of that. I said, well, where's the food? You know, what's going on with you? Because she was so thin, 89 years old. So she said, well, my daughter brings me these frozen meals in these small little Tupperware containers, and then we're in the freezer. I said, so all you eat is food that's frozen. You don't have anything else. So I said, okay. I said, what do you like? She said, I love grits, I I like oatmeal, and you know. So I said, okay. And it just just started something in me. I started preparing meals for her, at least two meals, two or three meals a week. Um, Went to the girls, we got real close. She called me, if I didn't talk to her every morning, she would call me every morning. I started going to the grocery store, and making sure that she had all the things that she wanted for breakfast: grits, eggs, oatmeal. I didn't matter what it was, and I wanted her to have. I wanted her to have meals. I wanted her to have some protein. I wanted her to have to have juice in the refrigerator. I wanted her to have cakes. I wanted her to be able to wake up any time through the night and go in the refrigerator and find something to eat. So that was my mission. So this lasted for about. Believe it or not, it lasted almost four years. Mm. Every week I would bring her whatever I cooked, soup, whatever. I would always just make sure that she had these meals. All she had to do was just kind of warm them up. You know, they would be in the fridge. Um, it got to the point where no one came around. Her daughter would only come once a month to bring these meals. So I was the person. I was like, "This. she's 89 years old. She would have no business out here by herself. Somebody needs to really keep, kind of keep an eye on her. So, you know, doctor's appointments, her, her feet needed to be taken care of, so I, I just, it was like a foot washing going on in the living room one day. I mean, whatever she needed, it didn't matter to me. I wanted to make sure that she had all the food that she needed and all of her needs were met. It didn't matter how much it cost, it didn't matter. She's only one person. It's not gonna be that much money. So, like I said, it went on for about three or four years. And one day we were sitting in the kitchen and she had this big blueberry farm. She had 700 blueberry bushes trees. So, you know, that's how she made her money. So I said, we're well, we going to have some blueberry pancakes this morning. We're going to have some. We're going to have some blueberry muffins. So I was in the kitchen cleaning up after I think I had went to the grocery store and packed the refrigerator with all kinds of goodies for her. And I was she was she had a rocking chair in the in the kitchen. And she was sitting in her rocking chair. And she would just sit there and she would eat and she would drink. Well, I'm at the, I'm at the kitchen counter um, washing dishes and cleaning everything up before I leave out. I don't want her to have to worry about anything. So she sits there and she's mumbling. And I'm like, Miss Helen, what are you talking about? What are you saying? She said to me, my sugar's at the bottom of the cup. And I said, what are you talking about? I really had no idea. I mean, I know what it means when you sugar at the bottom of the cup, you know, when we stir it. But that's not what she was talking about. She said to me, "Um," she said, the Lord waited until I was old to send somebody to take care of me. To help me in this old age that nobody has ever done anything for me or cared about me like you have. So I'm over here trying to But when I did this for Miss Helen, it was so automatic in me. Um it was just an automatic thing. I I I, I never thought about anything other than a woman who needed help. And uh, like I said, it lasted for about three or four years until she got to a point where she needed to um, go and live with her daughter in Decatur.
0: Mm-hmm. So. Amen. So at the end of Miss Helen's life, she would make the statement, my sugar's at the bottom of the cup. And the reality is, is when those out there encounter Christ in us, they should be able to make the statement, there's sugar at the bottom of my cup. This woman, Miss Deb, who was faithful to be sensitive to the needs of someone around her, took care of, sought to to serve, became literally the embodiment of Jesus to a woman who, in her admission, had never had someone care after her for all the previous years of our life. Let me tell you something, church. When we take on the disposition of Jesus like this story in John 4, we will have people who encounter Christ in us that go back to their hometowns, their own families, their own relationships and say, come see a man who told me everything I ever did. Thank you so much for listening to this week's message. If you would like more information about our church, be sure to visit us on the web at dwellingplacemovement.org.